Okay, okay. Let's turn our attention to God's Word now. Let's turn our attention to God's Word now. If you want to turn in your Bibles to Mark 11, Mark chapter 11. We'll be looking at the first 11, first 10 verses, sort of, um, in Mark chapter 11. Mark chapter 11. If there's one thing I would commend to your attention and attendance uh, before jumping into the sermon, it would be the seminar this upcoming Saturday on engaging our, our Muslim neighbors. That will be taught by uh, Dr. Matthew Bennett. Uh, a couple of years ago, I read Dr. Bennett's uh, great book, 40 Questions About Islam, uh, which I would recommend. Uh, and it was a great help to me regarding how to engage in dialogue and have gospel conversations with our Muslim neighbors. Uh, Dr. Bennett, is, is, uh, he's academically competent, but he's also practically qualified as well, as he spent a number of years in Egypt and a few other uh, nations as a missionary. Uh, I think you'll find this training uh, enlightening and useful as we seek to live as faithful witnesses in our city and world today. Well, we've been making our way through Mark's gospel for now 42 Sundays. This is the 42nd Sunday, and we're, we're going to take a little break over the summer. I, I'm going to be on sabbatical after this uh, Sunday, as, as uh, most of you know, our members definitely know, and, and our other pastors, name, uh, mainly Pastor Dan, will be leading us through uh, a summer in the Psalms, which is going to be very sweet and edifying. And, um, I, you know, looking at our text this week, I, I don't think I really planned this all that well, because last Sunday's sermon text would have been a really good Sunday to end uh, on for the summer, since last Sunday's text kind of closed up one section of Mark so nicely, and then this morning's text opens up a whole new section. So we're opening up a whole new section this morning, only to take a, a break for the next several weeks, but uh, here we are, and I'm sure the Lord has something good for us. Uh, before I jump in, let's take a moment to pray. Uh, Father, we, we give you thanks for the truth and power and grace of your word. We thank you that it is the means of grace through which you call us and conform us more and more to the image of your Son. We pray that that would take place here this morning. Would you save the lost and sanctify the saints? Would you, would you conform us more and more to the image of your Son as we behold him? May we behold Jesus in his beauty and glory and splendor this morning and so be changed as we behold him, becoming more and more like him as we behold him. We pray for his glory and in his name. Amen. Well, just imagine that on January 20, 2025, you wake up in Washington, D.C. from a somewhat lengthy nap, sort of coma, if you will. And lucky you, it was long enough that you kind of missed all of the recent presidential primaries and the race and the debates and everything. And so you don't actually know what's going on, but as you wander down the street in D.C., you happen upon the Capitol building. And out in front of the Capitol building, you witness some, some celebrations, there are parades and processions, there's music and speeches and prayers and songs, there's a band playing Hail to the Chief as someone walks out, uh, some famous minister prays a prayer, Garth Brooks sings Amazing Grace. And then this, this person, who seems to be kind of at the center of it all, places their hand on a huge Bible, and he swears upon and 
that Bible to defend the Constitution of the United States, and you just stumble upon all this, what did you just stumble upon? The presidential inauguration. And you know this because all the occurrences I just described are consistently practiced at that particular event. So you know that whoever this person is, this is the president of the United States. There's also, you know, of course, elements in each inauguration that can change, be distinctive, of course. Some things are consistent, like the oath of office, hail to the chief, Garth Brooks. God bless Garth Brooks. He's he's at every single one. Everyone can agree that Garth Brooks is great. I think. He's a uniter. That's why he's at all of them. But then there's also some things that that can change, that tell you something specific about this particular president. They they might have some certain people sing songs, pop stars or whoever. They might have a particular minister who comes from a a certain group or tradition, say the prayer. And, and, And those kinds of elements present in the event tell you something about what kind of president this person will be. Not just that this person is president, but that they're going to be a particular kind of president. Well, here this morning, we come to the royal procession of Jesus as he approaches the city of Jerusalem. And, and like the presidential inauguration, there are certain occurrences that anyone present who had an ounce of biblical literacy would have been able to recognize and know that the one whose procession this is, the one who's at the center of it all, is the king. But then what's more is that the discerning onlooker, discerning reader will also be able to tell something about what kind of king this is. And that's what we want to look at this morning as we open and read God's Word. So with that said, if you'd like to stand with me for the reading of Holy Scripture, let's listen with reverence and joy to the Word of our God of Mark 11, 1 through 11. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethphage and Bethany, at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, go into the village in front of you, And immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord has need of it and we'll send it back here immediately. And they went away and found a colt tied to a door outside in the street. And they untied it. And some of those standing there said to them, what are you doing untying the colt? And they said to them what Jesus had said and they let them go. And they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it. And many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. And he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple And when he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. As I mentioned, this is our 42nd week in Mark's gospel, and this passage serves to open up, as I mentioned, an entire new section of Mark to us. Last week, we left off one section of Mark with the story of blind Bartimaeus. And in some ways, that wrapped up Mark's themes or, or message between Mark 8.22 to 10.52 nicely. 
In some ways, that that text also simultaneously served as something of an on-ramp into the section we find ourselves in this morning. I might contend that blind, begging Bartimaeus actually kicked off what is often called Jesus' triumphal entry here. Uh, What I think I'd, I'd actually rather call his royal procession into Jerusalem here in Mark 11. Bartimaeus kicked the whole thing off by crying out that Jesus is the son of David and then joining his royal procession into Jerusalem, even all the way back in Jericho. But as we enter our text this morning, we're actually entering into the week of Jesus' passion. And yes, you you heard that rightly. We're entering into that week, the the entire last third. We're, We're just getting to the last third of Mark's gospel. The entire last third of Mark's gospel is devoted to a single week. Things slow down here. This is the week in which Jesus entered into Jerusalem cleansed the temple, cursed the fig tree, taught the crowds, argued with the Pharisees, instituted the Lord's Supper, prayed in Gethsemane. This is the week in which he was betrayed and arrested and flogged and crucified and killed and then raised on the third day. And Mark's devoting a whole third of his gospel to this week shows that it is central to his purposes in his book, just as it's central to our faith as a whole. But then this week is kicked off with Jesus' royal procession into Jerusalem in the week of the Passover. And this is a crucial moment. You'll, You'll recall how many times Jesus has told people to kind of hush about his identity as the Messiah and Son of God throughout Mark's gospel. It's almost as if he's been trying to keep it something of a secret. And there are multiple reasons for that. One, you know, of course, earlier, it wasn't his time to go to the cross yet, and he didn't want that kind of opposition to come yet, and it would indeed come once he was identified publicly as the Messiah. He also didn't yet want people to be talking publicly about his messianic identity because people were liable to misunderstand and to misinform, and there were other reasons as well, but, but, but here in our text, Jesus is finally going public with the fact that he's the Messiah. He's the Christ. He's the the king, he's the Lord, he's the one long promised by God to come and save and redeem his people. And indeed, we see that that opposition does come as a result, and that people do misunderstand and are misinformed about what all this means, but it doesn't make it any less true and vital and amazing. Jesus is the king. That's what our passage shows us and reveals to us this morning. And as we unpack That main idea this morning, I want to talk through three brief truths about Jesus' kingly identity here, showing us first that Jesus is the sovereign king. We're looking at what kind of king Jesus is, and first we see here that Jesus is the sovereign king. Now, our text begins with Jesus and his disciples drawing near to Jerusalem, arriving at the Mount of Olives, just east of the city. The villages Bethphage and Bethany are mentioned, uh, which are also just east of the city, And and I make a point of this because this text is often called the triumphal entry when it it actually seems that what takes place here in our text doesn't actually take place inside the walls of the city of Jerusalem. In fact, if you look at the sort of anticlimactic end of our text in verse 11, it seems that Jesus doesn't get much of a welcome inside the city of Jerusalem at all. And so the celebratory royal procession seems to have actually taken place, actually have taken place as Jesus was heading into the city, not in the city itself. But when outside of Jerusalem, around these villages, Jesus stops the hike and he talks with his disciples. He sends two of his disciples into a nearby village, probably Bethphage, since that was 
particularly close to the Mount of Olives. Uh, Bethany seems to be mentioned here in verse 1 because that's where they're going to stay that evening as we see in verse 11. So, so here we are. Jesus sends two of his disciples probably into Bethphage with a bit of instructions. It starts in verse 2. He says, go into the village in front of you and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord has need of it and we'll send it back here immediately. Now, undoubtedly, this would have all been a bit strange to the disciples. After all, the, the, the last leg of the journey into Jerusalem for pilgrims traveling to Jerusalem for the Passover was traditionally to be held on foot, even for those who were riding prior. They would get down off their beasts of burden, and they would walk the last leg of the journey into Jerusalem. And here, Jesus is not doing that. He's actually been walking, but he's about to get on a colt, a young male donkey for the last leg of his journey. It's not the norm for pilgrims on the Passover. And more weird, it's to be a cult that no one has ever ridden before. That might cause some of you to to scratch your heads. It might cause others of you uh, to recall texts that you're well familiar with for all you Numbers scholars out there. Numbers 19.2, Deuteronomy uh, 21.3. We see that animals set aside for sacred use were not to have been used beforehand for common purposes or for anything I'll leave that to your study. But what stands out here even more than any of that is that all of these things happen precisely as Jesus said. Mark seems to make a point of that. The disciples go into the village, as Jesus told them. He said there'd be a cult there, and there was a cult there. He said to untie it, and that some folks would would ask about what they were doing, and they untied it, and some folks asked about what they were doing. And then he told the disciples to tell them that the Lord had need of it and that the folks would then let them go and they told the folks and they let them go. And everything happened precisely as Jesus said. Now, some people see this as having happened because of Jesus' divine omniscience. You know, he's, he's both true God and true man. He's God, so he knows all things. And this all took place precisely as he said because he's divine and he planned it and he knew it before that it happened about how all of this would take place precisely as it did. And so he sent them in, he gave them instruction according to his divine omniscience, and that's certainly plausible, I'd say probable, because he knew not just about the donkey, but what the people would say, and that wouldn't have been planned. Others, however, see this as having happened as a result of Jesus through natural human means and planning, prearranging the whole thing with some people he knew in this village. Either is perfectly acceptable and possible, even if the latter view is the case, the, 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 the first is, is certainly true as well. But either way, here's an important application for us in light of this. You may not always understand what Jesus is doing or why he's calling you to do a particular thing, but trusting and obeying is always the best option because he's the sovereign Lord. Even when you don't know what he's doing, he knows what he's doing. And he's planned everything to go a certain way and he's got good purposes and he's ordered everything perfectly so we can just trust and obey. Some of you have been in the past or will be in the future put in hard situations at work that you know require a certain kind of response of faithfulness to Jesus as your ultimate aim, but the responses are risky. It could cost you. Jesus is the sovereign king. Trust and obey. Some of you might feel as if the Lord might be calling you into certain areas of, of ministry or service in the church or in the world. Perhaps Jesus is calling you to start some new endeavor in our church or in the neighborhood. Perhaps he's calling you to, to, to go and serving in cross-cultural missions, giving up home and comfort and salary and much else, yet, yet you haven't even given it much thought because 
It's risky. Before you take the plunge, you just wish you could kind of look into a crystal ball and and see the way all things work out. But, But you don't need a crystal ball. You don't need to know the future because Jesus does. Jesus is the sovereign king. You can trust him and obey. Still, Jesus' sovereign kingship is seen moreover in his particular instructions to the disciples here. Here in the, the instructions of what they're to say when people inquire as to why they're taking the cult, it's kind of weird. You know, if, I, if I'm walking through the parking lot into the building and there's this janky uh, bike rack over here, if someone's like taking, if someone I don't know is taking a bicycle from that rack and that bike belongs to someone I do know, I'm liable to say something like, hey, what are you doing unlocking that bike? Similarly here, some in the village see someone obviously not from around there. They're from Galilee. That would have been obvious. And they're there taking a colt that belonged to someone they probably knew in the village. And so they say, hey, what are you doing untying that colt? The disciples respond, the Lord has need of it and will send it back here immediately and the people let them go. I don't know if you realize it. That's a profound statement. The Lord has need of it. Who has need of it? The Lord. That's why the people just let them go, because the Lord has need of it. So I wonder if you realize that that donkey didn't ultimately belong to whoever owned it in the village there. The one who owned it, ultimately speaking, was the Lord, right? He he owns the cattle on a thousand hills, Psalm 5010 tells us. The earth is the Lord and the fullness thereof, Psalm 24.1. Deuteronomy 10.14, Behold, to the Lord your God belong heaven and the heaven of heavens and the earth and all that is in it, Job 4.41.11. The Lord says, whatever is under the whole of heaven is mine. In other words, he's the sovereign Lord, sovereignty here meaning not just in reference to his control of all things, but his ownership of all things. That donkey belongs to him. And if he wants to make use of it, the owner and whoever else in that village ought to hand it over. They knew that. That's why they handed it over. I wonder if we realize it. I wonder if we know it. Particularly as it pertains to the stuff we commonly call mine. I wonder if you know that your bank account is not actually yours. I wonder if you know that your, your, your calendar is not actually yours. Your home is not yours. Your job is not yours. Your spouse and your family are not ultimately yours. I know that you and I often think and act like it's all ours, but all of these things ultimately belong to the Lord. We've been given a temporary stewardship over them, but they're His. And so if at any point the Lord taps on your shoulder and says, I have need of this, Our prerogative is to hand it over with glad-hearted submission for His sacred use. Are there people in your life that you could be evangelizing or discipling or serving, but you just don't want to give up the time, you don't want to give up the resources? Are there ways in which you could be growing in hospitality, but you don't want to give up your home and its cleanliness and your privacy? Are there missions and ministries that could be funded, but you're not willing to give up the money, that nest egg, that safety net. Remember, friend, all that you have belongs to the Lord, and if the Lord has need of it, giving him back what's his is only just. Because what kind of king is Jesus? He's the sovereign king. But not only that, he's also the anticipated king. Jesus is the the long-expected king, the one 
whom the scriptures foretold that God promised, that God's people waited for and longed for. And we see this as we go on to, into verse 7 to see Jesus ride on that colt, that donkey. And we see that they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it and he sat on it. And thus Jesus doesn't walk the last leg of the trip into Jerusalem. He rides on a donkey. And that's significant because it fulfills a number of prophecies in Old Testament texts, some of which we don't even have time to get into. There's a ton. But he fulfills here prophecies made in Holy Scripture centuries before Jesus' arrival on that day. You can find one made about this very event in Zechariah 9.9. There the prophet foretold, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation. Is he humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey? You can plainly see here why the people present in that day at this royal procession were shouting and praising and celebrating because they were seeing the fulfillment of this prophecy. Not just the particular details about the donkey and all that, but they're celebrating because the fact that the one seated on the donkey is the long-promised king and Messiah of God who's been sent to save and redeem his people. Righteous and having salvation is he. This is further confirmed by the celebration and response of the people. You're looking at verse 8. Many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. Getting these leafy branches down was a, a common custom leading up to the Passover. It was kind of like waving a flag in a 4th of July celebration. But the people weren't just waving the branches. They were laying their cloaks and the branches down in the path of Jesus there, which clearly harkens back to Jehu in 2 Kings 9. There, Jehu, king in Israel, when he was declared to be king, he had a similar kind of red carpet treatment. When they anointed him to be king in Israel, 2 Kings 9.13 says that they then in haste, every man of them took his garment and put it, in, put it under him on the bare steps, and they blew the trumpet and proclaimed, Jehu is king! Well, they're saying the very same about Jesus here in these actions. They're saying Jesus is king! It's not only foretold in Zechariah, it's foreshadowed in 2 Kings. And the shouts of the people further enlighten us as to the anticipation the people had for Jesus' coming. Listen to what they said and shouted. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. It was some sort of antiphonal responsive reading that they were shouting back and forth to one another. Hosanna! It's a word that means save us. Save us, we pray. Save us, we implore. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. They, they bless Jesus as he rode in because he's coming in the very name of God to accomplish the very purposes of God and to fulfill the very promises of God. And these are the very words we find in Psalm 118, 25 and 26, which we read earlier. And we find the psalmist right. Save us, we pray, O Lord. Hosanna! O Lord, we pray, give us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. This is the one promised by God who comes in his name. But those weren't the only words shouted. They also shouted, in addition, blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. 
See how they echo the words of blind Bartimaeus in the previous passage, celebrating that the Lord, the Lord Jesus is, is the son of David and the fulfillment of the promises God made to David in 2 Samuel 7. Wherein the Lord promised that, that one of David's descendants would be the forever king of his people and of the whole world. And Isaiah 9 tells us that this promised son of David, that his kingdom and government would be established and would increase and would last forever and ever. All of this is pointing to the fact that Jesus is the fulfillment of these poems and prophecies, these foretellings and foreshadowings. Jesus is the long-expected, long-promised, long-anticipated king. He has come to inaugurate the kingdom of God on earth, and he will come again to bring it in completion. If we're realistic about this, this anticipation, this longing for the king's arrival is not merely located within the people of Israel on that day and those familiar with the scriptures, right? This, this longing, this hunger, this anticipation for this right ruler who will right all wrongs and make all things new is a longing located in the deep recesses of every human heart. This past week, I came across a, a paragraph in this wonderful book by Richard Lovelace. I commend your reading, Renewal is a Way of Life. And he's talking about the kingdom of God. And listen to what he says. He says, one of the ruling passions of humanity is the search for a righteous government. The poor and the disadvantaged contend against the system with the conviction that another economic order will make the world livable. Every four years, the American people elect a new president with the hope that somehow this will make things better. Economic downturns, crop failures, moral declines, and worsening international conditions are all blamed on presidents who in most cases have little control over events. This book was written several decades ago, by the way. Listen to this. In the hearts of the people is a groping, inarticulate conviction that if the right ruler would only come along, the world would be healed of all its wounds. Creation is headless and desperately searching for its head. In the hearts of the people is a groping, inarticulate conviction that if the right ruler would only come along, the world would be healed of all its wounds. Creation is headless and desperately searching for its head. When I came across that this, this past week, I, I felt it to be particularly relevant to our cultural moment. Indeed, the, the world has seen much suffering, much hardship over the last several weeks, months, years even. Everywhere you look, it, it, it seems like the world is bleeding, and even before one wound can be properly tended to and healed and recovered from, another blow seems to come. Because of this, it's easy to see why people, the, the people are just weary. People are hungry for change. People are, are unsatisfied. People are searching. Creation is headless and desperately searching for its head. It's desperately longing for the right ruler but the reality is that nothing in this world will be as it should be until all things come under the rightful rule and reign of the Lord Jesus Christ. And the good news of our passage this morning is that he's come. Here's your king. Here's your head. Here's, here's the ruler you long for and are looking for. He comes with righteousness 
Zechariah says. That, that word could be translated also as justice. He comes with justice and salvation. He comes to make all things right and to make all things new. And you might look around and go, it doesn't look like all things are made new. You expect me to believe that? Look at this world. It's a mess. You're telling me Jesus is its rightful ruler? Well, why are things not as they should be? Well, friends, we, we live in, in, in what we call the, the, the tension of the already and not yet of the kingdom of God. It's already here. Jesus has come. He's already conquered. He's already inaugurated His kingdom and reign, but it's not yet here in completion and will not be until He comes again. Similar to how in, in World War II, on D-Day, the Allied forces stormed the beaches of Normandy. They essentially achieved victory in that day. Historians say that the war was as good as over on that day. But it wasn't until V-Day, almost a year later, when Germany finally surrendered and when the war was officially over, victory had been inaugurated, but it hadn't yet seen completion. Similarly, Jesus has come. He's entered Jerusalem. He's ushered in His kingdom there on the week of His passion. He's achieved victory. But it won't be fully realized until He comes again. It won't be until that day that all things are made new and all things are made right. On that day, all the wicked rulers will be knocked off their thrones. The violence will be conquered. Those who use and, and abuse their power to oppress and manipulate and deceive will be humbled. There will be no more crop failures or international conflict or shootings or abuse or cover-ups. Instead, Jesus Christ will be seen as the rightful king. And the humbled and meek will be raised to reign alongside their Savior in a new heaven and a new earth forevermore. The time is not yet. We do have a calling in the meantime, though. We're here as a church, we're here as Christians, and we're called to be an embassy of the kingdom of Jesus Christ. We're, we're here to, to represent the rule and reign of our Savior and King in a foreign land. We're called to be here to proclaim that the right ruler has come along and that the longings of the people have been met because creation's head has come to save and will come again to establish his justice on the earth. He will come again, not riding on a donkey, but on his war horse to seal his victory over his and our enemies and to make his rule globally visible and public and uncontested for good, all because he is God's promised king. What kind of king is Jesus? He's the anticipated king. He's the king we long for. But not only that, here we also see that Jesus comes as the meek king. He's the meek king. In his royal procession here, in his first royal procession, he came as the meek king. And this needs to be stated in light of what Zechariah says about Jesus and in light of what his riding on a donkey says about him, right? Riding on a donkey does not just show that Jesus is the king. It does show that. It shows he's the promised and anticipated king, the Davidic king. It does show that, but it shows more. It shows something about the kind of king he is. It shows that he's a humble and meek and peaceable and gentle king. Zechariah 9.9, your king is coming to you righteous and having salvation. Is he humble? Humble. And mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Shows that he's humble and meek, coming in gentleness and peace. 
right off the bat, that might seem perplexing to some of us. That might leave you scratching your head. And here we are talking about how Jesus is king, how he's the anticipated king. He's coming again to to conquer and subdue his and our enemies. And, And so many of the elements present in this procession here bear witness to his royal and regal identity. And in many ways, often royalty just doesn't seem to jive with humility to us. Majesty and meekness seem to be you know, kind of opposing traits, not coexisting ones. And yet here we find in Jesus majesty and meekness. We find royalty and humility. We find glory and gentleness. All coexisting with such beauty, with such excellence, with such loveliness. And it's just so attractive, isn't it? Tim Keller rightly says about Jesus, This is particularly impressive to readers over the centuries has been what Jonathan Edwards called an admirable conjunction of diverse excellencies in Jesus Christ. That's a great sentence. I love that. That is, in him, we we see qualities and virtues we would ordinarily consider incompatible in the same person. We would never think they could be combined, but because they are, they are strikingly beautiful. Jesus combines high majesty with the greatest humility. He joins the strongest commitment to justice with astonishing mercy and grace. And he reveals a transcendent self-sufficiency and yet entire trust and reliance upon his heavenly Father. We are surprised to see such tenderness without any weakness, boldness without any harshness. Humility without any uncertainty, indeed, accompanied by towering confidence. Readers can discover for themselves his unbending convictions, but complete approachability. His insistence on the truth, but always bathed in love. His power without insensitivity. Integrity without rigidity. Passion without prejudice. Behold the stunning beauty of the Lord Jesus Christ. There's no one like Jesus. There's no one who compares to his unfathomable beauty and his matchless loveliness. Every admirable quality finds its ineffable perfection in Jesus. And because of his meekness and humility, because of his gentleness and approachability, he He welcomes us. He's the king. He's majestical. He's high and lifted up. That's clear here. And and yet, what's he told us in reference to his meek, his meekness and his gentleness and his lowliness? What has he told us? He said, you can come. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me for... I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. That's Jesus' invitation to you in light of his his meekness and gentleness and lowliness. That That is his invitation. That's the kind of king we find in Jesus. And he wanted to make that abundantly clear on the day of his procession by riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. He wanted us to see here his meekness and humility, his gentleness and his approachability. 
He wanted to show us that while he's, he's the lion of the tribe of Judah, long-promised king, the one who's come as our mighty conqueror and king, and he's also the meek and mild lamb with utter approachability and who gladly welcomes us into his arms. What kind of king is Jesus? He's the meek king. Then lastly, in tandem with this meekness, we also see that he's the sacrificial king. His meekness as the lamb also points to his looming sacrifice. I'm trying to move quickly here. I know we're running late. Part of what we need to remember at this point is that this was Passover week. Jesus was coming into Jerusalem on the week of his Passover. All of these pilgrims present on this road were there for that reason And one of the consistent problems and misunderstandings we've been seeing again and again throughout Mark's gospel is that the people and even Jesus' own disciples had completely misunderstood what kind of Messiah he was. Continually confused him for being a nationalistic, kind of merely political Messiah. They called him the son of David, but in saying that, they meant him to be a political Messiah who's come to throw off the yoke of Roman rule, to conquer Roman armies, to put an end to Roman taxation and occupation and oppression. In other words, they thought him to be this Moses-like deliverer who had come to, to merely give a repeat of what Moses had done with the Egyptians so long ago, only now with Rome. And so in light of that, you can see what all this excitement in Mark 11 is for. They didn't actually understand what all this royal procession meant. John 12, 16 makes that very point. Realize here, realize that excitement is not always, it's not the same thing as faith and discipleship, right? Knowing some things about the Bible, this crowd saw this event, they knew some things about the Bible, they knew that this was the king, Knowing the scriptures, knowing some things about the Bible like this group does here, does not necessarily mean that someone has knowledge of Christ and his gospel. They thought that Jesus had come like this Moses-like deliverer to defeat and conquer Rome like God had done through Moses in Egypt. And this is made abundantly clear. The fact that this is the week of Passover, wherein they're remembering their deliverance from Egypt. That's why they're so excited. They're saying this new redeemer, this new deliverer, this new Moses-like prophet is here to, to throw off Roman rule. And yet, what all of these celebrants miss is that, yes, Jesus has come as the regal and royal son of David. Yes, he's come as the, the Moses-like deliverer to wage war against the enemies of God's people and to deliver them from slavery. But not the enemies in slavery they're expecting. He's, he's come to deliver his people from the much deeper slavery and from their even greater enemies. He's come to set us free from slavery to sin and Satan and death. And he's come to do it because in addition to being David's son and the new Moses, he's also come as the Passover lamb who was slain in the stead of God's people. Here, Jesus is riding into Jerusalem, not to be crowned, but to be crucified for us. What kind of king is Jesus? He's the sovereign king. He's the anticipated royal, regal king and son of David who's come to bring God's kingdom and justice to the earth so that his righteous rule might perpetuate for all of time. 
But he's also the meek king, and he's the kind of king who so loves us and who so longs for us to belong to this kingdom as citizens and not come under the judgment of this kingdom that he would be willing to lay down his life for us. It's the kind of king that Isaiah 53 tells us would go like a lamb to the slaughter, who would so meekly and gently and quietly go to his sacrifice like a lamb who before his shears is silent. It's the kind of king who, who though he's, he's, he's the lion of the tribe of Judah, would also come as the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. This is why we say what an admirable conjunction of diverse excellencies in Jesus Christ. He's the sovereign king. He's the anticipated king. He's the meek king, and he's the sacrificial king. All for us. This is your king. This is the kind of king he is. Behold him and be captivated by him this morning. Let's go to him in prayer before partaking of the Lord's Supper. Lord Jesus, you are king. You are Lord. You are majestical and mighty. There's no power like yours. There's no magnificence like yours. There's no glory like yours. You are the royal and regal king, long promised, and whom our hearts long for. And we thank you that you have come not just to be our king, but our crucified Savior. We thank you that you've come not just as the lion, but as the lamb, sacrificed for our sins and raised for our justification. And we pray that as we come to the Lord's Supper now, that we would feast on your body and your blood, that it would be to us the communion with you through the Holy Spirit whom you have given us, that we would keep the feast because you are our risen Savior, crucified for our sins, raised on the third day, coming again so that we might feast with you in glory. May this be a remembrance of this story, communion with you, and an anticipation for your soon return. We pray by your merits. Amen.